Okay, hello everybody and welcome to this month's IMV Imaging Focal Point podcast, uh, the podcast where we're talking all things or some things imaging. Um, as usual, I am joined by the usual members of the IMV Imaging clinical team, so say hello Amy. Hi! And say hello Laura. Hi everyone. And this month we're going to be talking about some of the imaging peculiarities or or sort of um, or, or kind of particulars of the kind of feline species. So it's conversing on cats and filibustering on felines. And to help us today, um, we have been joined by uh, Sally Griffin. Sally is a veterinary surgeon who qualified from the University of Liverpool in 2007 and then after a time in small animal practice in the West Midlands where she developed a keen interest in diagnostic imaging and especially ultrasound. Um, Sally undertook a certificate and advanced veterinary practice with an em emphasis on imaging and following that began her residency at the University in Bristol, um, which she completed in 2014, gaining her European specialist status at that same time, and is an RCVS specialist in veterinary diagnostic imaging. Um, say hello, Sally. Hello. <laughs> thank you for having me. <laughs> so, no, thank you. Thank you for coming and welcome to the podcast as well. Um, so this month we decided we're going to, we're going to talk about the sort of the, as I said, the sort of particulars of imaging when it comes to cats, because we do a lot of a lot of things. A lot of people primarily think about um, kind of dogs when we talk about imaging. A lot of a lot of research, a lot of textbooks is based around dogs. We see that as well with some of our own clinical material. It's heavily dog biased, so I think it's good to give cats um, their time and have a bit of a discussion about that. Uh, so let's going going back to the um, sort of the beginning, I suppose, when we start, and we're focusing mainly on ultrasound today, but we can touch on other bits of imaging if they come up, other modalities as well. Um, what are we doing in terms of if we're starting to a feline patient? Is there differences that we should be considering in terms of the equipment or just the initial approach to to feline ultrasound? So um, that's a really good question. I think initially the same many of the same things that we would do for a dog when we're scanning a dog apply for cats so we still want them to be fasted because we'd still have the same issues with shadowing from ingester in the gastrointestinal tract obscuring some anatomy if we're not careful water is always fine that can act as a really good acoustic window ideally we want to sedate our patients Probably where I work, we would sedate at least 99% of the cats that we scan. And that not only ensures that they're still, but really ensures they've got a nice, nicely relaxed abdomen as well, which makes the scan so much easier. In terms of prep, I would make sure that you do a really good clip. Often they've got very, very fine fur, but make sure that you clip all the hair um, in the region that you're going to scan so they are bald so you get that really good contact and you're not accidentally trapping air in the hair which will uh, affect your image dramatically you'll get a lot of reverberation artifact um, and then similar sort of thing you want to swab with alcohol and apply gel and in terms of equipment generally for cats I rely on a microconvex transducer which I think most practices tend to have that tends to be the go-to transducer and then if you're lucky, I would also use the linear transducer. So generally what I'll do, and it will depend on the size of the cat, but most of the time 
I start um, at the liver in the, the cranial abdomen. That's the start of my scan. And then I work backwards. So I would generally scan with the micro, the liver with the microconvex initially. And that's quite nice because when you're going subcostal, the microconvex has got quite a curve. It's got a curved head. And so it lends itself for pushing underneath the rib cage a bit just to get to the liver. And it also tends to give you a sort of medium range of frequencies, which gives you a decent depth of penetration. For the rest of the abdomen, I will reach for the linear transducer. And the beauty of the linear transducer is that they generally offer a, a higher range of frequencies. So that means that your images are better resolution. The only downside is that the depth, that the higher the frequency that you use, the depth of penetration of the ultrasound beam into the tissues decreases. But generally speaking, because cats are usually they're only imaging to about four or five centimeters, and a linear is is pretty capable of doing that. So you don't generally have an issue um, scanning a, a full abdomen with the linear transducer in the cat. And in smaller cats, after I've scanned the liver with the microconvex. If I think I can, I'll go back and just scan it with the linear transducer as well, just to get the slightly nicer images and make sure I'm not missing anything. Thanks. It's a great day to sort of know that approach. And certainly, as you think, most people do have microconvex transducers, but it's good to know about the linear ones and think about them because sometimes people have them and they don't always think to use them as much or they kind of associate it with musculoskeletal imaging as well something something you mentioned there just that'd be quite useful to 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 go into is just with them um, sedation for them just i know that's a kind of common question that we get asked a lot is just what do what do you sort of um, use for cats do you have a particular combination that you like to use so I'm really lucky and I work with a multidisciplinary team which incorporates anaesthetists so it's many many years now since I've had to anaesthetize or sedate anything but what I will say is that by far when when an animal is health sufficiently healthy the metatomidine generally gives the best level of sedation and sometimes something on its own like butorphanol may be enough particularly if it's a really sick cat but often it's it's not enough. So um, something like metatomidine would be would be my go to drug. I think if I was if I ever had that choice. <laughs> no thanks. It's a great. I appreciate there's going to be so many different scenarios, and and like you said, you've got a Denisethis team there, so it's 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 slightly um, slightly different, but it's still really useful to to know that as well. Sort of what's. Um, people are kind of going to for these as well. Um, just out of interest, you, you mentioning scanning um, subcostally for the liver using a microconvex and then and then moving on with the rest of the linear. It's just something that, that popped up into my head while we were talking about it. Do you ever tend to find those those reasons for scanning through the intercostal spaces in cats, or is it something that I know we do it in dogs quite a bit for deep chested dogs? But do you ever use that kind of area? Is there as kind of does that come up much, or is it something you don't tend to use? Um, I think when we're talking about the abdomen of a cat, I can't remember the last time I have had to go intercostally. Um, I'm not saying never than that I never would, maybe in a really big cat. But I think, I mean, generally with a microconvex, even with a, a relatively large cat like a Maine Coon, you can reach all of the liver quite nicely from a subcostal location. Um, I suppose actually that the time when I might need to go intercostally is if I'm doing 
some aspirates and that's the easiest path or perhaps if I'm doing a gallbladder aspirate uh, then then depending on exactly where that is in the cat it may end up being intercostal um, but generally uh, not for the abdomen but if I'm scanning the thorax and usually in a cat that's for a pleural effusion or a cranial mediastinal mass then yes I may well have to go intercostally at that point um, and the difficulty that you've got there with a linear transducer is the footprint because they tend to be quite large and rectangular and they don't always lend themselves very well for for going intercostally obviously you can rotate them um, so that they're parallel with the well, that's what you would have to do parallel with the direction of the the ribs but even still sometimes and particularly if you have to aspirate a microconvex can be easier um, and actually I think that's a, a good point when you are aspirating things in the abdomen even even though I use a linear to scan I'm not afraid of reaching for the microconvex when I'm doing an aspirate of let's say the liver the spleen the gallbladder because the footprint isn't as big with a microconvex so it tends not to, not to get in the way of your needle uh, and, and also because the, the the beam fans out you get a much better view of what you're sticking the problem with the linear transducer is it, there's a particular technique if you want to FNA with a linear transducer and you kind of need to lift up, or at least this is the way I do it, lift up the transducer a little bit and stick the needle into the skin under the footprint of the transducer and then sort of put the transducer back on the surface of the skin. And it's a bit of a learned technique. It's much more difficult initially when you're getting used to it than, than sampling with a microconvex. So... Scan with scan your cats with a linear transducer if you have one. Definitely use a linear, but probably sample most things with a microconvex unless you can't see it well enough with a microconvex. Thinking about aspirating, are there any other differences aspirating cats versus dog when it comes to your approach? The only thing I change, the actual technique is really the same. Um, the only thing I might change is have, use a slightly smaller needle. So I would probably use something like a 23 gauge, depending on what I'm sampling, a 23 gauge one to one and a half inch needle. I do find that in cats, the peritoneum, at least in my hands, seems to be tougher when I'm sampling with than, than in dogs. So in dogs, often I'll use a, a spinal needle for the liver and the spleen. And that's quite nice because you pop the spinal needle into the organ, you can then take out the stylet. And so you, you know that the sample of tissue that you're obtaining is only from that organ. It's not from all the, the skin and muscle and tissue that you've gone in beforehand. And having tried that in cats, I think it works for one of my colleagues, but I tend to find that sometimes the spinal needle is, just doesn't go through the peritoneum in a nice relaxed fashion. Um, and I feel like I'm going to harpoon the cat. So I do tend to use a hypodermic needle most of the time, which for me negates that issue. But I still, um, for say the spleen, I generally won't aspirate. For the kidney, I won't aspirate. They're fairly bloody organs. So you, you don't, I, I don't need to aspirate. For the liver, I would tend to use a 23 gauge hypodermic needle with a five mil syringe initially i would try and do the procedure by just popping the needle in and redirecting without aspirating any and then i look at what i've got on my slide if i'm happy with with what i've got then i might repeat that procedure if i'm not happy i don't think i've got enough of a harvest then i'll use a little bit of aspiration 
Same with the lymph nodes. I'll normally, well, almost always aspirate when I'm sampling lymph nodes. Intestinal masses, I would always aspirate as well. I'm trying to think if there's anything else that we would routinely aspirate. Pancreas, we don't aspirate very often. There's not an issue to aspirating it. You just don't always get a good window. But yes, if I can, if I have to aspirate the, if I have to FNA the pancreas, I will usually draw back on the syringe and use an aspiration technique for that as well. It's a great, yeah, great answer um, as well um, to sort of see in detail about that as well. Um, going on from, we sort of segued into aspiration a little bit there, but back into sort of the routine um, abdominal exams, is is there any major differences in the approach to certain organs that we tend to find in cats compared to, to dogs? I mean, again, we recommend people sort of follow a routine and have a kind of methodology and, and what you described as starting out of the liver and then moving around works very well. But are there any bigger differences in terms of the anatomy that you find that sort of helps or hinders the scan as you're doing it? Um, so the, I think the, the good news for listeners is that it's very similar with 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 small differences. So if you are mildly confident at scanning the abdomen of a dog, then you should definitely be having a go at scanning the abdomen of a cat. Definitely, you shouldn't see this as something that is entirely foreign. Um, it, so there's, there's many similarities. There's just a few small differences to be aware of. Uh, so, so generally, I would start with the cat in right lateral, same as dogs. And I scan the liver first and then I work cordially and then I flip the cat over. Again, this is the same that I do for dogs, flip the cat over so it's in left lateral. And then I finish off the scan, which is probably about a third to a quarter of the whole exam with the animal in left lateral recumbency. So starting at the liver, I think one of the first things that you'll notice is the falciform ligament is much bigger in the cat. And it can be so large, actually, that if you're not careful you can misinterpret that as being part of the liver. And so you could come up with a false, false diagnosis of hepatomegaly when actually it's just a cat that's got quite a lot of intra-abdominal falciform fat. And the way that you can differentiate falciform fat from liver, and it, there is a, a sharp demarcation between the two, but generally speaking, if you're going from a midline uh, approach, subcostal approach, just behind the ziphy sternum, the falciform fat will appear just at the top of your screen. And in most cases, unless it's an obese cat, in most cats, the, the falciform fat appears slightly hyperechoic relative to the liver. Now, if it's a, an obese cat, it's possible that it might appear iso or even hypoechoic to the liver. That is possible. But generally speaking, the falciform fat will appear hyper, so brighter than the liver parenchyma. If you find it's the other way around and you're imaging a sick cat that perhaps hasn't eaten for a while, then that would be a reasonably good indicator uh, of possible hepatic lipidosis. In fact, for severe hepatic lipidosis, it's one of the most thought to be one of the most sensitive signs, a liver that is hyperechoic to the falciform fat. As in dogs and cats, we would see the portal veins and hepatic veins but we don't expect to see hepatic arteries or bile ducts. So this is exactly the same as in dogs, unless those structures are abnormally dilated. 
For the gallbladder, the gallbladder sits just to the right of midline in the cat, so similar to the dog. The only thing I'd say is that it's generally quite a bit easier, at least in my hands, to follow the common bile duct cordally from the, the gallbladder to the duodenal papilla. And in the cat, unlike the dog, it's normal for the common bile duct to be really quite tortuous. It's like a when you see it, you'll recognise it as a serpentine like snake on the screen. It looks quite impressive the first time you see it, but that's actually quite normal. And as you track it cordally, you'll notice that you're actually moving the, the or following the common bile duct just ventral to the portal vein. So you'll see the portal vein uh, just in the, the far field of your image. And this is where at this point you're going to be just behind or just caudal to the liver. And then you should be able in most cats to follow it to the duodenal papilla. And the duodenal papilla is easily recognisable in the cat. It's much more obvious in the cat than the dog. And it's a little soft tissue nodule, probably about half a centimetre in diameter, that's just sat within the dorsal wall of the duodenum, around about three centimetres distal to the pylorodudinal junction. Or in other words, it's just after or just caudal to the, the cranial duodenal flexure. So, and, and that's a really good place to become familiar with scanning, even in normal animals, because as soon as you get a jaundiced animal in and you're concerned about a biliary obstruction, that's where you're going to want to image, because most obstructions that I see occur around about the level of the duodenal papilla, be that I think the most commonly common one I see is a stone, or it might be if you've got cholangitis that you've got thickening of the bowel duct wall and some sludge inside. So that's, that's generally where you want to to be looking for in jaundice cats. Um, next thing that I come to is the stomach. So you'll know that in dogs, the stomach, if you imagine on a ventrodorsal radiograph, the stomach goes across from left to right, effectively perpendicular to the, the spinal cord, the spinal column. So you've got the fundus on the left, body in the middle, and then the pylorus on the right-hand side. In cats, it's different. You may have heard that we refer to it as a J-shaped stomach. And that's because if you imagine the fundus of a cat is on the left-hand side of the abdomen, as in a dog, but then rather than going across to the right-hand side, the body actually, you have to go cordially to the body. And then you do a little U-turn in the pyloric antrum, which is the bottom part of the J. And then just to the right of midline, you'll have the pylorodudinal junction. And then the duodenum, tends to be a little bit more towards the midline rather than just underneath that right body wall as in as in the dog so it's a, a slightly different configuration of the stomach and the other thing that you'll see is the fundus is slightly different it's got these really long when it's empty it's got these long beautiful rugal folds that project into this the lumen and so some people say it looks like a bit like a, the spokes of a wagon wheel when it's empty and it looks really quite spectacular. And the submucosa of the stomach in the cat is very hyperechoic, it's very bright, and that's because it contains fat. And you might have also noticed, if you're observant, that on a radiograph of a feline abdomen, in the stomach, you may see a radiolucent band. And actually that's because you've got fat in the submucosa. So that, but it's a normal finding. Um, in terms of the intestines, so in dogs, the duodenum is generally considered to be a little bit thicker than the jejunum, whereas in cats, the two tend to be similar in thickness. So the, the range that's stated is, is from about 1.8 up to 2.7 millimetres. 
in, for, for, and that's that's going from the sero the outer aspect of the serosa to the inner aspect of the mucosa. Um, in general, I think most cats fall at about two point two millimeters if I if I measure them. The iliocolic junction in the cat is really beautiful, and it's generally easier to see than in the dog. I think we quite commonly see it in the dog, but it often contains a bit more gas, which can obscure the actual junction itself. Whereas in cats, it tends not to contain much gas at all. So you can, and it's it's easier to find and to follow. You can either work backwards from the colon, so follow the, the descending colon to transverse colon to the short ascending portion and then into the iliocolic junction, or you can scan just medial to the right kidney. And generally that's where you're going to find the iliocolic junction. And the, the, the cecum in the cat is quite different from a cecum in the dog. So in the dog, it's quite long and sausage shaped. I would guess probably 10 to 15 centimetres, something like that. In the cat, it tends to be only probably two to three centimetres in length. And it's cone shaped. And it has these really quite prominent submucosal lymphoid follicles, which are they look like black circles that project slightly, they overlap into the mucosal layer. And so it gives the this cone of intestine quite a distinctive shape. First time when I was scanning the first few cats, I, I was like, what on earth is this? But it's just the cecum. And it, it's just the normal appearance of the cecum. If you're using a microconvex, then be, be aware that you may not see the layering very well. And sometimes, because you've got those black lymphoid follicles, the, the whole of the cecum can just look like a, a black blind ending pouch. But again, that's probably normal. It's probably just the fact you're using a microconvex and not a linear to look at the intestinal wall. I also found that the iliocolic uh, lymph nodes in the region of the iliocecocolic junction are a little bit easier to spot than they are in the dog. What else? Um, so the spleen, uh, that's the next thing that I'll come to. So in the cat, the spleen is in a relatively consistent position. So in the dog, well, in dogs and cats, the head of the spleen is just caudal to the stomach and it's, it's fairly secured in place by the, the short gastrosplenic ligaments. And in the dog, as you know, the, the body and the tail can be just about anywhere. It can go right across to the other side of the abdomen very often. In cats, that tends not to happen. And you'll notice this if, if you're looking at ventrodorsal radiographs of the cat. They, the, the head, sorry, the body and the tail of the spleen tend to sit quite neatly under that left lateral abdominal wall. So it's much more consistent in position. The other thing that's a bit different from dogs is relative to the size of the body, the feline spleen is a little bit smaller. It's still very homogeneous in ecotexture, but you will notice that it, it is a bit smaller. And the other thing is, it, unlike dogs, they tend not to increase in size very much with sedation and anesthesia. There's a, a relatively recent publication that's come out that's looked at different sedative and anesthetic agents. And they showed that some of them did produce a slight increase in size of the spleen in the cat, but it was only by a factor of a millimetre or two. So if we say that on average, the, the spleen is up to, the head of the spleen would be up to about a centimetre in thickness, there, thereabouts, in a, in a normal cat. If you're measuring a centimetre and a half in a sedated cat, that's not going to just be the, the sedation alone. That's going to be probably because there's something else going on. 
Next, I come to the kidneys. Generally speaking, the kidneys are a bit more caudal in the cat than they are in the dog. So coming on to what you were asking me earlier, Sam, it would be, I don't generally find that I need an intercostal approach. It might be just slightly subcostal, um, but but it's, it's pretty easy to see the kidneys in the cat. The key thing that you have to be very careful, and I was recently um, showing some general practitioner vets how to scan cats the other day, and a, a fairly common problem is scanning the same kidney twice. So you've got the cat on one side and you scan, it's generally, if you start with right lateral, you scan the left kidney, and then you flip the cat over later on and you scan the left kidney again, convinced that you're scanning the right kidney. And that's because they're really mobile. And so you can actually push them around quite a lot and you can convince yourself I'm definitely scanning the right kidney because it can look that like it's very superficial. It's right underneath that body wall. But all that's happened is you've just pushed a few things out of the way with a bit of pressure. And I promise you, you're, you might be scanning the left kidney as well. So the, the way to do it, the way I do it is, well, first of all, don't apply too much pressure when you've got the cat in lateral in the lateral recumbency. But make sure that the caudal vena cava and the aorta, which are obviously the, the two huge vessels that, that go through the length of the abdomen from cranial to caudal, they should be deep to the kidney that you're scanning in lateral recumbency. So if, for example, the cat is in right lateral recumbency, then I would expect at the top of my screen, if it's the left kidney, I'm going to have the left kidney at the top and then the vessels are going to be deep to the kidney. If, on the other hand, I find that the vessels are superficial to the kidney that I'm scanning effectively, if that makes sense, assuming I'm not pushing them out of the way, then it means that you're scanning the kidney on the other side of the abdomen. The other way that you can do it, which is perhaps a fail-safe way, is put the cat into dorsal recumbency. Let the kidneys, you can palpate them if you want, because they're usually easy to palpate, let them drop to either side or push them to either side and then put the probe on the left side and then put the probe on the right side. And that's a fairly fail-safe way of doing it. And I suppose it's, it's not often too important, but if you've got a stone on one side and you're referring it for a sub, um, or if you're going to consider removing one of the kidneys, that's when it, it really starts to become very, very important. Would you tend to use a combination of those two techniques or do you have one that you use sort of like the majority of the time? I'm I'm lucky because I'm scanning cats regularly then I and I I've got I suppose a lot of hand memory it because and I, I I use the vessels I think um if in doubt I use the vessels sometimes I'll pick up and it's usually from with the cat in left lateral I'll accidentally pick up again the left lap, the left kidney. But the, the right kidney, another way actually thinking about it, that another way of, of spotting the right kidney and checking it's the right kidney that you're imaging is it sits just within the, the renal phosphor of the chordate liver lobe. So it's going to be immediately caudal to a chunk of liver if you're imaging the right kidney. So if you're imaging what you think is the right kidney and the liver is quite far cranially, it's probably not going to be the right kidney. So that's another way of looking at it. Um, but I suppose gem generally speaking, I would use the vessels, the vessels method. Um, and then let me think, what else? Um, renal size, we're looking at cats because cats are all similar in size. So length in cat of the kidney in cats would be from about three centimeters up to four and a half centimeters. 
most of the time they come up about four centimetres, give or take. Um, it's easier to get a nice transverse view of the kidney. I think it's much easier in cats than it is in dogs. And that's a lovely view if you're concerned that there might be a small volume of fluid within the renal pelvis. Just be aware that you'll often have a lot of fat within the, the renal pelvis of a cat or the peripelvic sinus. And that can appear very hyperechoic and it can also shadow. So it doesn't necessarily mean you've got a stone. Uh, on radiographs, that fat, because it can be quite marked in, in volume, you might notice a radiolucent area in your kidneys on a, a feline abdominal radiograph. And that's normal. That's just fat. The other thing to be very well aware of in cats, and this is very common, is particularly in older male neutered cats, but I think in any cat, you, you can have very bright or hyperechoic renal cortices. And that's because they like to deposit lipid in the renal tubules. And so you'll end up with a, a very bright renal cortex with enhanced corticomedullary definition. So that's common. So you've got to be so careful if you're using the renal cortex to compare echogenicity with, say, the liver or the spleen. That can easily catch you out. The next thing I scan is the adrenals. They're similar in location to the... the to canine adrenals, to adrenals in dogs. I use the same method and the same landmarks, um, but they tend to be either slightly bean-shaped or hype or ovoid. And more often than not, although you can see corticomedullary definition in some cats with a linear, they're usually just hypoechoic, fairly uniformly hypoechoic. But in cats, unlike dogs, they can be mineralized as, an, as a normal finding. And I use that term normal quite loosely. It's just that at the moment we're not aware. It probably is pathological, but we're not aware that it's clinically significant. So if I see little hyperechoic foci in the feline adrenals that are shadowing, I'll just write in my report, probably mineralization, but we won't go and investigate that any further. In dogs, on the other hand, if you see mineralization in the adrenal, that's different. That's usually in association with a nodule or mass. And I start to think something along the lines of, could this be an adenoma or an adenocarcinoma? Uh, and I think the only other couple of different differences that I would see in cats v dogs, uh, urinary bladder, it's a bit easier to scan in the cat. They tend to be more intra-abdominal rather than being intrapelvic. And I, I don't know if I've ever seen the prostate in a cat. In dogs, we will always see it, even in neutered dogs, but in cats, at least in my hands, I don't tend to appreciate it because it's so small. So I think those, those are all the, the differences that I can think of. What an absolutely fantastically um, comprehensive summation of scanning a cat. That was awesome. I hope everybody that's listening had a pen and paper ready to take notes because that, that was fantastic. Thanks, Sally. Oh, that was great. No, really super interesting. There's, there's quite a few that were familiar, but then um, some nice little hints and tips there as well, which may be new to some people. So um, we often get asked on courses, actually, about scanning animals in dorsal recumbency. I was just thinking back to how you were talking about making sure you're scanning each kidney um, and probably each adrenal as well, um, scanning in dorsal. So a lot of people would like to scan in dorsal because they... I think they can imagine that it's probably easier than having to turn the dog or cat over. It's maybe easier to just have everything there. And um, what are your kind of thoughts on pros and cons of dorsal recumbency scanning in cats and dogs? Um, so I also get asked the same, and I was asked the same last week actually when I was, was scanning in practice. Um, 
I used to have a colleague, it really depends on how you're taught. I used to have a, a colleague, a Spanish colleague, who scanned everything in dorsal recumbency. And I don't think there are any major advantages or disadvantages that don't all also correlate to scanning and lateral recumbency. It all really comes down to familiarity of where you're expecting things to appear when you scan. So, for example, I would find it quite difficult to scan in dorsal recumbency because when you've done a few scans, you do start to develop hand memory. So you, if, and if you're doing the, set, the organs in the same order every time, you, you get to the point where you don't really need to think about where you're going next with your hand. It just goes there automatically. The minute that you change the orientation of the animal that from something that you're not familiar with, then you lose that advantage of hand memory. So I would say that it's perfectly legitimate to scan any way you want, be that dorsal or in lateral recumbency. Some people actually will scan in lateral recumbency and then for the right side, they go underneath. I've done that as well. It tends to be, I think, a little bit more uncomfortable for the animal um, and uncomfortable for yourself as well. But it does get around the issue of gas sometimes, excuse me, in the gastrointestinal tract. But I think it, it just comes down to starting with whatever way that you like and then probably by always try different ways. But once you've found a way that you like, stick with that method so that you will eventually... A, you can come up with, with a, a system of organs that you can scan in a particular order so you don't forget anything. And B, you'll develop hand memory, which I think re relies on scanning the, the patient in the same position each time and then things become a lot easier. So both, both ways are absolutely fine. It might simply come down to how you've been taught or how you started off. But try, try different ways because often people prefer one way or, or over another. Yeah, I find it impossible actually to scan them in dorsal. You know, when you've got a dog that wants to lie on its back and then you go, oh, I, I think I can just, and no, I find it really, really hard. So I agree with you exactly. The only the only thing I don't do is scan with them standing. Not so much a problem in cats, but I do see people doing this in dogs. So um, they just bring the dog into the room and pop the, the scanner on in the hope that everything's going to be in a fairly typical position. I just I think that's a very difficult way of scanning. So if you do that, you don't like scanning and that's the way that you scan, that it may be that it's worthwhile trying with the animal in lateral recumbency sedated. And you might find actually it opens up a whole new world for you because it's much easier. Yeah. Also, a standing animal is going to probably be panting or at least breathing a lot with the um, excitement of being brought into a consult room or into the prep room. So, yeah, no, I say the same. I, I don't I don't advise people to really try learning how to scan them standing unless it's maybe like poker scanning or something, because it's just not very rewarding, is it? And you want people to find it rewarding. Yeah, absolutely. If you don't, that I, I think the whole point of, of ultrasound and why we do what we do is that we enjoy it. You know, we've worked really, really hard to get to where we are. And it's, it's a bit like running or some form of exercise. Ultimately, if you don't enjoy it, you're not likely to carry on. And, but the minute that you start to find a couple of things on ultrasound, I pretty much guarantee you're going to love it. Because it, it really, as, as a diagnostic clinician, it opens up a whole new world of things that you can diagnose without having to refer. 
and it is so rewarding and that might be I mean every step is rewarding I, the first time I found the liver as a new graduate that was rewarding the first time I found the mythical adrenal well that was fantastic you know and I think once you get that bug then you 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 just you just got to keep at it it's it's such a if you can scan it it just makes your life so much easier and it's really enjoyable as well do you know the best part is about being a teacher that you get to um see that eureka moment a rewarding moment again and yes. again and again and everybody <laughs> that you teach as well yes very much so it's it's all about those what we call aha moments and it's often a small hand movement or 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 gesture or some some very small tip or trick and that's all you need to to be able to find something or image something in a way that you didn't think you could before so and it's it's the same with cats um and generally cats are often a little bit easier to scan than a lot of the larger dogs that we scan because if you've got a decent microconvex or linear probe the images tend to be that little bit prettier so it's easier to see where where you are in the abdomen and what what you're looking at definitely and i find it's very easy to take for granted what an amazing modality ultrasound is because i always think top of every every vet's um wish dream wish list right is to speak with animals to actually <laughs> and to have x-ray goggles where you can look inside and i think it's it's easy to forget that actually we have that don't we we have ultrasound we can quite literally look inside the animal it's incredible yeah yeah and and if you can put the time and effort in and i know it's difficult when you're on a busy day on clinics but if you can learn to scan your i think your life as a clinician is so much different than if you can't scan it's just worlds apart and it's fun when you just get when you once you've got getting started is the hard bit but once you've got started it's really really fun and 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 I think whenever a specialist says this, there's a tendency just to dismiss it and go, yeah, 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 but, you know, you're a specialist. But honestly, the only difference between me and a general practitioner is, on the whole, yes, I've done reading, but practice. You know, I've scanned lots and lots and lots and lots of animals. Um, so there's no reason, though, a general practitioner can't get proficient in scanning it's just practice and everyone has to do it whether it's a specialist or a certificate holder or someone a new graduate it is just practice it really is here here we love that it's true though you don't believe me it's true <laughs> that was such a fantastically detailed yeah, run through awesome. of the whole of the abdomen that you just went through every question i had written down on my list <laughs> Um, so I've oh, missed, yeah, I, I've got more. It's because I would be annoyed if I came off and I was thinking, damn it, I should have mentioned this. So I've I've written like spleen and what I you know like small or so I've so that's why it's 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 detailed. But you've there's also other things that I can talk about if you want me to talk about them. I can no. Well, there's some some fast, fantastic information about the sort of scanning the abdomen. One one thing we're always sort of interested in is there any things that you you sort of see that could really catch people out with abdominal ultrasound scanning when people are coming? Like, what were there any common pitfalls that people might fall into or trip into? Um, that's a really good question, and the answer is yes. So some of these we've already mentioned. So, for example, when you are looking at the liver, make sure that you differentiate it from falciform fat. So you're not 
misinterpreting the liver as, as hepatomegaly when there is none. When, when we think about the, the biliary tree, one of the most common reasons that I'm asked to scan the abdomen of a cat is in a cat that we suspect may have cholangitis or cholangiohepatitis. And as part and parcel of that, um, that's my cat coming in here just to say hello. Um, it, part and parcel of that, one of the things that we see is thickening of the bile duct walls. That's the common bile duct and maybe intra and extrahepatic bile ducts. And also dilation of the biliary tree. And I didn't realise this when I was first started out scanning. But when you see dilation of the biliary tree, yes, it can absolutely indicate that you may have an obstruction, as I said, usually of the distal common bile duct at the, the duodenal papilla. But it can also occur if you've had an obstruction historically that's then passed, or if you've got dilation because of a cholangitis, because of inflammation and stasis of the bile, you can also get biliary dilation because of that. And in some cats, the biliary tree dilates and then it doesn't always go back to its normal diameter. So the dilation can persist. So just bear that in mind if you if you think that the biliary tree is dilated. Um, for the stomach, just be very, very careful when you're measuring gastric wall thickness, particularly when you can see the rugal folds that you don't accidentally measure across a rugal fold. You want to measure in between the rugal folds. So in a, in a cat, for example, the normal interrugal fold thickness is about two millimetres. If you measure across a rugal fold, you're always going to come up with a diameter that's greater than that and assume that the, the stomach wall is thickened when it's not. So just be really careful there. Um, the ileum will normally have a thicker muscularis and submucosa uh, that appear quite prominent compared with the other parts of the small intestine. So you may, when you get good at scanning and a bit more familiar with the normal appearance of the intestine, you'll, you may be able to spot the ileum as you're scanning through because it will have this bright white band, which is the submucosa, and a slightly thicker muscularis as well. Um, Something else that caught me out for ages until some bright spark came out with a publication was I would scan a cat and see these hypo, well-defined hypoechoic layers within the submucosal layer, usually of the distal ileum, sorry, the, the distal jejunum and the ileum. And I would be racking my brains, you know, what is this? Is this some sort of odd tumour or, or something like that that we're not expecting? But a publication came out and these are basically uh, showed that they are just payers patches. So they're a normal finding that we more commonly see if you're using a high frequency linear transducer. So you're seeing the wall layering nicely. It's a younger animal um, and you're scanning the distal jejunum and the ileum. Then if you notice an additional hypoechoic or black layer in the submucosa, that's almost certainly going to just be a, a payers patch. So you can probably just take note because it's very pretty but ignore it beyond that um something else that's caught me out previously when we switched ultrasound machines and we started we got a better machine we could use a better probe with higher frequencies is the spleen started to look quite mottled and particularly in younger animals and it took us a while we were there several of us looking at this spleen is this normal is it just that we've not seen this before and it's the better machine or is these spleens suddenly abnormal? So we sampled quite a few and they all came back as normal. So I think perhaps we're resolving some of the lymphoid centres. So so just, just to bear that in mind, particularly if the, the spleen is normal in size, 
If you have a dog with a muffled spleen, then we start to think about possibly lymphoma. We pay quite a bit more attention, particularly if it's enlarged and you've got lymphadenopathy. In cats with a muffled spleen, it might be, as we've just said, that you're resolving the lymphoid centres, or it might be that you've got extramedullary hematopoiesis, lymphoid, lymphoid hypoplasia, or it could be that you've got neoplasia there. There's, there's a, when you see a muffled spleen in the cat, I would always take that to be non-specific. It's not the same as in the dog where we, we do start to think a little bit more about lymphoma. It could be lymphoma, but it could just as easily be something completely benign. So those are the cases where you may want to consider FNA. Um, we've already mentioned hyperechoic renal cortices in the old male neutered cat because of lipid accumulation. That's very common. Other things that people, when I'm when I'm watching people scan and they, they ask me questions, is often people I feel have a tendency to rely too heavily on subjective evaluation of the echogenicity of a certain organ. This goes for this is applicable to dogs as well. So the, the, for example, you might say, is the liver a little bit hyper or hypoechoic? And the problem with that is it is so subjective. And unless the change is relatively marked, then at best it can be a, a, a mild indicator of something perhaps possibly maybe indicates abnormality, but it could also be normal for the animal. And when you're comparing an echogenicity of one organ with another, you've really got to assume that the second organ that you're comparing it with is normal, which is not always the case, particularly in cats with lipid deposition. Um, you know, that can throw everything out. So, so therefore, the point is, try and look at other things as well. By all means, take echogenicity into account, but look at the size of an organ, the shape of an organ, um, the overall, whether it's uniform or heterogeneous and echogenicity, have we got any lymphadenopathy? Look at the bigger picture as well. Same for corticomedullary definition. When I'm teaching people to scan, I'm always, always asking cats and dogs, do you think this corticomedullary definition is subtly reduced? And my answer is, it might be, you might be right, but it's a subjective finding and it's really not that specific. Take, if it's marked, then that's fine, that's one thing. But if it's subtle, then take it with a pinch of salt and look at the whole picture. If you're suspicious, suspicious of something like chronic kidney disease, you might see reduced corticomedullary definition, but ask yourself, is the kidney small? Is it irregular? Have I got some pelvic dilation? Have I got stones present? Have I got uh, mineralization of the parenchyma? Look at everything else. Look at it more globally rather than focusing in on just one finding. Um, and then the other thing that people can trip up on is often in cats, we see within the urinary bladder in the lumen, hyperechoic foci, which are suspended within the, the urine. They don't shadow. Uh, they, they, they're not gravity dependent and they tend to clump together. And the most likely explanation for that is lipiduria. So lipid droplets that are shed from the upper urinary tract. And it can, can catch people out if you're not aware of that. But generally, if it follows that criteria, we tend to think of it as being fairly insignificant. Well, that's brilliant. It's so many great tips there, both for cats and just for abdominal ultrasound in general and loads of things to look out for. So I think that's going to have, find, have, have people are going to find that really, really useful. And um, thank you. The only thing that I haven't mentioned so far is just on the pancreas. And in, in dogs, we know that the right lobe of the pancreas is larger and longer than the left lobe. And it's the other way around in the cat. So in the cat, the left lobe is really quite long. And as you're following it, it'll often go beyond the, the spleen and the left kidney. 
And you'll see within the left lobe, you've got this re often reasonably sized anechoic duct that traverses the length of the left pancreatic lobe. And if you put colour Doppler on, there's, there's no flow. So it's not a blood vessel. It's just the normal pancreatic duct, which can measure up to about a millimetre. Um, depending on who you ask, this is very contentious, but up to about a millimetre in normal cats. And in theory, possibly up to 2.5 millimetres in the, the geriatric cat. But that's that's never truly been proven as a, as a normal finding. So take that with a pinch of salt. But the, the left lobe that's easier to spot in the cat is also quite handy because pancreatitis is more common in the left lobe and the body of the cat than the right lobe, albeit it can occur anywhere. You can cut and paste that anywhere <laughs> or get rid of it. <laughs> no, thank you very much, Sally. That's fantastic. It's been, it's been a great run through and really detailed. I think people find it really, really useful. So that was that was brilliant. Thanks. Um, yeah, I challenge anyone to not want to have a go of scanning a cat after this. What's your cat called? Uh, this is Harry. He's he's old now. He's 14. And um, he's just, yeah, he's very much my cat. He, he always wants to sit behind me on the chair. But he's a very chatty little thing. I'm, I'm more of a cat. In truth be told, I'm more of a cat person. We've got a dog as well. Um, I think you know, Sam, I'm sure I've mentioned to you, um, our Labrador Henry, he's just the nicest Labrador you could possibly want, but I find a cat a bit easier. My husband loves the dog, so. <laughs> Everyone's happy then. Yeah, I digress. It, you know, it's, it's, my cat's 14 as well, and um, the other night he ran upstairs and hid in like a little hole, and then when I tried to get him out, he bit me, so that was, that was good. <laughs> <laughs> he, bit, he bit you? He tried to. He tried to. He doesn't oh, bite no. properly. He kind of play bites. But you're as a vet, you're like you're trained to like get out the way of anything looking remotely like it's going to bite you. So I can't help but sort of leaping backwards when he tries to do it. So he probably takes joy in it. <laughs> okay, fantastic. So we've learned loads about MCATs, ultrasound, abdominal ultrasound in general. So there's no need to fear the felines as well. But I think that's great and that's good for everybody here um, on the IMG Imaging Focal Point podcast. And um, thank you for listening. Please check out all our previous episodes of the podcast. Um, you can find them on our website, um, www.img-imaging.com. You can also check out our journal clubs and other learning resources there. But I think it's all that's left to do is to say goodbye. So first off, I'd like to say goodbye and a big thank you to Sally for joining us this um, for this episode. Thank you very much for inviting me. I've really enjoyed it and um, chatting to everyone. I hope you find it useful and um, more than anything else, enjoy scanning and then you'll do it again. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's all, all, all about the practice. So practice, 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 and, um, and you find, find the joy in it as well. But yeah, no, it's, it's I'll get let the other team members say goodbye um, one at a time. Bye, guys. Find the joy. <laughs> yes, um, thank you so much, Sally. It was absolute inspiration to listen to. It was a joy. Um, thank you very much. And we can't forget, thank you to um, Harry for his, for his cameo. <laughs> And that's great. Oh. Last of all, it's, it's goodbye for me, and uh, we'll see you next time. <laughs>